You're listening to audio from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more information about Pleasant Valley, visit our website at pleasantvalley.cc. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter number 10. And as you're turning there, one quick announcement. Uh, If you are a member, we have a family meeting Q&A session this Wednesday night at 6.30 p.m. where we're going to talk about spiritual gifts and women in ministry and worship ministry. So I encourage all of our members to be here this Wednesday night at 6.30. And of course, kids and student ministry is available for all ages. And uh, we're going to jump into the sermon for three or four minutes before we take the offering because today the first part of Acts chapter 10 is going to show us the reason why we pass offering plates. So so look at this in Acts chapter 10. uh, This is week 25 of our verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. The thesis statement or the purpose statement of the whole book of Acts, all 28 chapters, is in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. So if you're newer to Pleasant Valley, you missed this several months ago. Here's what Jesus said. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the whole story of Acts is the unfolding fulfillment of those words by Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts is the story of the geographic and ethnic expansion of the gospel. That the gospel message begins to be proclaimed in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost to the uh, Jewish people. And then by the time you get to Acts chapter 8, it goes from the Jews to the half-Jews, as it were, in Samaria, the Samaritans. And now today, for the first time in Acts chapter 10, the gospel breaks the barrier and gets into the Gentile people, what Jesus called the ends of the earth in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And it's going to happen by a man named Cornelius, a Gentile, and his whole family here in the gospel here in Acts 10. When I say Gentile, don't be alarmed like, what does that mean? When you think about a Gentile, just think about yourself. A Gentile is anyone who's not a Jew. And so the gospel is is going from Jews to Gentiles, which means Acts chapter 10 is the reason we're all here today at church. If Acts chapter 10 didn't happen, there is no Gentiles that are a part of the people of God. Because Ephesians 2 says, those of us that were Gentiles, meaning not Jews, we were separated from God. We were strangers to the covenants and promise of God. We were outsiders. Gentiles had no place in the family of God for thousands of years, ultimately. But Jesus comes in all of that changes. And Acts chapter 10 tells us how. Acts chapter 10 verse 1, the Holy Spirit says through Luke at Caesarea, which is really the capital city for the Roman government uh, of Judea. Mostly Gentiles live there. There was a man named Cornelius who himself was a Gentile, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. To say that he was a centurion meant he was a commander over 100 soldiers, which was part of a larger cohort of 600 to 1,000 soldiers. Centurions were paid five times more than the soldiers. So this is a pretty prominent, wealthy, influential Gentile man. Verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God. This meant 
Cornelius was not a Jew. He'd not fully converted, but he was sympathetic to the Jewish God. He worshiped the Jewish God, but he'd not yet been circumcised, for example. He was kind of on the fringe, but seeking to know God. In verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. And he gave alms, or money, generously to the people, and he prayed continually to God. So the two primary means of Jewish worship were prayer and giving money to the poor. Next verse, verse number three. About the ninth hour of the day, so that's 3 p.m. in the afternoon, which was one of multiple times throughout the day of scheduled prayer for the Jews, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come to him and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at the angel in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, this isn't the main point of the text, but I want us to see something that I think is important. Cornelius faithfully prayed, continually, the Bible says, continually gave money to the poor. And the angel says to him in verse 4, your prayers and your money giving to the poor have ascended. That means they've gone up as a memorial before God. So this idea of his prayers and generosity is a memorial, that sacrificial language taken from the Old Testament in places like Leviticus 2, for example, where the Jews would make offerings of worship to the Lord. And then if you skip down to verse 31, the angel said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms, or given to the poor, have been remembered before God. And here's what that means. When we pray and when we give our money to the poor and to the kingdom of God, we are worshiping God. God hears the prayers. God sees us give. He keeps record of it. He remembers. Every gift you give towards the kingdom, God takes a note so that in Hebrews 13, 16, do not neglect to do good. What does it mean to do good? To share what you have. Monetary resources, physical resources. Share what you have for such sacrifices. You see, in the New Testament, sacrifices isn't uh, killing animals. It's giving hard-earned money to the poor and to the kingdom of God. Such sacrifices are pleasing. To God. Brothers and sisters, on a very practical level, here's what this means. When we pass those offering plates in a moment, this is not just something we do out of obligation to keep the lights on. It is so much more than that. When we pass those offering plates and when we give, that is worship. And it's pleasing to God. It's a sacrifice because many of you in this room, you work so hard for every penny. And I know that money is tight. And I know the bills are stacked up on the counter. And God sees that sacrifice and he remembers and he smiles. It's what the Bible says. So I want to ask our ushers to come forward. I want to pray. And we're going to worship God. God through giving. Listen, this is just as much worship as when we sing. This is just as much worship as when we hear the word of God. As you're giving, think about it as worship. 
Listen, this isn't just giving to the church as an institution. This is effectively giving to God. And it pleases him. He sees it. He's honored. So let's give for the glory of God. Because every penny we have is his. So Lord Jesus, we give. Not because we have to, God, but because we get to. Lord, if we would give out of merely obligation or a guilty conscience, Lord, maybe we should just slide the money back in our purse or wallet. Because, Lord, you don't need our money. You own the world. God, you invite us in to partner with you in loving the nations. So, God, may we give as a sacrifice to you. Lord, may these dollars and cents ascend to heaven as a memorial. Jesus, you are better than materialism. You're greater than consumerism. And the newest gadget and clothes. God, your kingdom is marching on. So take our money, God, whether we got a dollar or $20,000 to give. Lord, it's all yours. Lord, whether we're the widow with a couple pennies. Lord, whether we're the person that has so much in the bank account, God, take our hearts before you take our money. God, we want to honor you. We worship you as we give. It's yours, Jesus. Multiply it that your name might be made great in all the land. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship together. Amen. Thank you, Brother Michael. Uh, Let's go back to our text in Acts chapter 10, verse 3. We're going to pick up the story. The Holy Spirit says through Luke, About the ninth hour of the day, Cornelius saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at the angel in terror and said, What is it, Lord? Notice how he automatically assumes the angel is there to represent God. This is a word from the Lord. And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Verse 5. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. Now remember, Cornelius is a Gentile. Peter is a Jew. That is very important to the story. He, verse 6, Peter, is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So Cornelius immediately obeys God, sends man to get Peter and bring him back to Caesarea. Now we go 31 miles down the coast to Joppa. And let's see what is simultaneously happening there in the sovereignty of God. Verse 9, the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so that's Cornelius' guys going to get Peter. Look what's happening with Peter. Peter was up on the housetop, or went up on the housetop. It would have been a flat roof that they had accessible by a stairs or, or ladder. It was very common for them to kind of hang out on rooftops. All right? uh, about the sixth hour, so that's noon. And he's going up there to pray. And Peter became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. Now, normally Jews would have a mid-morning meal and then a late afternoon meal as well. But while they were preparing his meal, Peter fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open as something like a great sheet descending or coming down. This is like a cloth or material that would have been used in like a sail, for example. So picture a huge sheet coming down 
let down by its four corners, covering the earth, upon the earth. In the sheep were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter was a Jew. Jews couldn't eat reptiles. They couldn't eat unclean animals. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common, Peter. This had to happen three times. Peter won't obey the voice of God because to do so, he thinks he's disobeying God who said elsewhere, don't eat animals like that. Peter's confused. But it took three times. And finally, the thing was taken up at once to heaven when Peter got the point. Then in verse 17, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision was that he might that it, what it might mean. Now, look at this timing and the divine orchestration in leadership of God. Right after Peter sees the vision, at the exact same time, here's what happens. Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry of, for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Holy Spirit said to Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in to be his guest. Now, before we get into what all of this means, I want us to see something very important in the text, that God speaks to his people. In verse 4 and 5, God speaks to Cornelius. In verse 11 through 15, God speaks to Peter. In verse 19, God speaks to Peter through the Holy Spirit. Listen, God spoke to his people then, and God speaks to his people now. The question is, are we listening? Notice in Acts 10, when, though, God spoke to Cornelius and Peter. It's when they were praying. Did you see that detail? It's when Cornelius was praying in verse 30 that God spoke to him. It's when Peter was praying in verse 9 when God spoke to him. Pleasant Valley, if we want to be a people who hear the voice of God, we have to be a people who pray. And if we only see prayer as one-way communication with us speaking to God, then we don't fully understand prayer. Because prayer biblically speaking, is two-way communication. It's us speaking to God, but it's God speaking to us. But so many of us don't hear God speak in prayer because we're so busy doing all the talking, God can't get a word in. If we don't take the time to listen, we won't receive the gift of hearing from God. I wonder how many of us, and I know I'm guilty of this, are missing out on God's leadership and direction in our life when we're praying simply because we're not paying attention to what the Spirit of God may have for us. What if prayer isn't simply us telling God what's on our heart? What if prayer is God telling you what's on His heart? The Holy Spirit speaks 
And he does it primarily and most clearly through his word. This word was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when you read the word of God, this is the voice of the Holy Spirit in your life. But also the spirit of God speaks through that still small voice. But how do we hear it? It's when we live in the Word. It's when we dig in the Word and meditate on the Word of God. When you live in this Word, your heart becomes in tune to the Father's heart, which puts us in a position to hear the Spirit of God speak to us. He may bring people and ideas to our minds. Have you ever been woken in the middle of the night with someone on your heart for no explainable reason? Have you ever been just driving along one day and just someone pops into your mind that you need to call or invite over for lunch? What if God was impressing things upon our heart in a way that we're missing if we're not paying attention? What if there are no accidents, no coincidences? What if God is willing in a relationship to communicate with his people if we'd only pay attention? But it's hard for us to hear from God because there's so much noise in our lives. TVs are blasting, phones are ringing, emails are dinging, kids are screaming, cornbread's burning, and John Calipari's cussing after that loss to Evansville the other night. Life is so crazy and life's so loud, we get lost in the noise and chaos and, and we couldn't hear the voice of God if we wanted to. But others, others of us in this room, listen, and this has been me so much of my life, we don't hear from God in our prayers because we don't believe God still speaks. You will never hear something that you've made up your mind you're not going to hear. But Pleasant Valley, I believe God is calling us to pay attention. Get in the Word Pray, seek the face of God, but let's not be so prideful as to think that prayer is simply us talking to God. Let's open up our hearts. Maybe he has something for us to give to someone else. Because here's what's so amazing in this text about the voice of God and the sovereignty of God. Often, when God is speaking to us about another person he lays on our heart, he's speaking to that other person at the same time, preparing them for the message he gave us to give to them. That's what happened in Acts 10. God speaks to Cornelius about Peter. At the same time, he's speaking to Peter to what to say to Cornelius. And then they all get together. And in verse 33, they're in the house and Cornelius says something like this. Here we are all together in the presence of God. You see, when we pay attention to the Holy Spirit and obey, we find ourselves in God's presence. And God divinely and sovereignly orchestrates supernatural appointments for us with other people. But you got to listen. There is ministry God wants you to do in this city if we'll just listen and pay attention. Now, as important as that is, neither is that the main point of Acts 10. So that was kind of the second introduction. Now let's get to the actual sermon. Uh, back to Acts chapter 10. Pick it up in verse 9. This is the message that God gives Peter that Peter's supposed to relay to Cornelius. Here it is. Verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He got hungry. He wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. And he saw the heavens open as something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. Now, try to get a 
mental picture of this. Great big sheet with all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. Just envision them all jumbled up together. There was a voice that came to Peter. Rise, Peter. Kill. Eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Now, what in the world is going on here? This is a bizarre text, isn't it? I want to try to illustrate it in this way. Every year at Halloween, um, our three kids have a competition to see who can get the most candy. And the way we determine the winner is by weighing it on scales. So this year, uh, like we do every year, we get back to the house after trick-or-treat time, and the kids weigh it out. And this year, between the three, they had 22-plus pounds of candy. That's a lot of sugar, and that's a lot of cavities, and that's a lot of money that Daddy's going to be spending out on that. And it's all because of the generosity of the fine folks in Hunter's Ridge, the land that is flowing with King's High Snickers and Butterfingers. But every year, though, the kids get so upset with Annie and I because they don't understand why we won't let them eat all 22 pounds of candy right there on the spot. They also get upset with us because when they're not paying attention, Miss Annie and I have been known to steal a little Butterfinger or two. It's kind of what happened in this little video. It's hilarious that we're going to see at this time. So you know how I put you to bed last night? Uh-huh. Well, I got really hungry, and I ate all of your candy. I'm sorry. You're just joking. You didn't eat my candy. I did. I was really hungry. Well, so long. I know, but I was really hungry and I didn't have any other food. I'm really sorry. Well, you should eat some food from in, from in here. Oh, I'm really sorry. Me too. I'm not, I'm not mad at you. It's okay. Well, it was not okay in the Edwards house. Uh, that is not the word we get uh, when there's Snickers missing. Uh, so when your kids come home with 22 pounds of candy, you got to give them rules. You can have this many per night. You can take this many in your lunchbox to school. Well, God also gave rules to his people when it came to eating. Not butterfingers, but the kind of animals they could eat, the kind of meat they could or couldn't have. The Old Testament is filled with dietary restrictions. Peter knew all that. He was a Jew that read the Old Testament. So in Acts 10, Peter gets this vision of all kinds of different animals. And God said something that shocked Peter. God said, Peter... Kill the animals and eat them. The problem was, as a Jew who knew the Old Testament and Jewish law, Peter knew the very strict dietary regulations that he was not allowed to eat those animals because they were unclean. A few examples of some of the dietary restrictions found in the Old Testament. So kids, when you hear this, mom and dad aren't going to seem nearly as mean now when they pack that ham sandwich and veggies for lunch. Look at what the Old Testament people were stuck with. Leviticus 11.1, 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying to them, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, These are the living things that you may eat among all the animals that are on the earth. 
whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat that. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud and part the hoof, you shall not eat these, the camel, because it chews the cud and does not part the hoof. It's unclean to you, the rock badger, because it chews the cud but doesn't part the hoof. It's unclean to you, can't eat it. The hare, because it chews the cud and doesn't part the hoof, it's unclean to you. The pig, because it parts the hoof and cloven-footed, doesn't chew the cud, it's unclean to you. So there goes bacon right there. It's gone. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They're unclean to you. And then the law goes on to make all kinds of distinctions between clean and unclean foods that the Jewish people could or could not eat. But the question is, why? Have you ever read all this in Leviticus and been so puzzled? Like, why in the world was God so particular about what they could eat? It is not because he's trying to control cholesterol. God's not trying to get them to squeeze into their size 8 jeans again. That's not what's going on here. God gives really distinct food laws because he wants his people to be holy and set apart from all the other nations. Leviticus chapter 20 explains the why behind the what. I am the Lord your God who has separated you, Israel, from the other peoples. Okay, How did God choose to separate his people? Here's how. Through food. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which the ground crawls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, am holy, and I have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine." The Jews were God's people. The Gentiles were not God's people. God wanted them clearly distinguished, separated, set apart. Feasting and eating together was how people had relationships primarily in that era. So by creating strict food regulations, God was making sure he kept Jews and Gentiles apart. But now Jesus comes in the New Testament, and all of that is changing. So in Peter's vision in Acts 10, he sees all of these animals, which by Jewish law were forbidden and unclean. God says to Peter in verse 12, every hunter's favorite verse. I love that in God's providence, we get to Acts chapter 10, deer and deer season. Rise, kill and eat. I can see Peter right there on the roof and his orange right there on the rooftop holding that rifle. But this word from God it left Peter terribly confused because it seems like God is calling Peter to sin by eating forbidden food. So Peter says in verse 14, by no means, Lord. When you try to Jesus juke Jesus, you're going to lose. He's like, I've never eaten anything that's common or unclean. Peter's like, God, look. The BLT looks awesome, but you know I can't eat that. I got holy lips. Leviticus says I can't have a BLT. But God says in verse 15, this is a new word from the Lord. What God has made clean, Peter, don't you call common. This is one of the most decisive moments in the history of the church. In this moment, God is doing away with the Old Testament dietary laws which very practically and happily speaking means we can bust out the brisket, pass the sausage biscuit. 
Give me the bacon, mama, is what this means. If that don't make you say amen, I don't know what will. Yesterday, Annie and I had a church planning couple from Birmingham in visiting, and we took them to Old South, made possible because of Acts chapter 10. But, but the question is, why is God doing away with dietary laws and declaring all foods to be clean now in the New Testament? It's not just because God wants there to be fried bologna sandwiches, the new heavens and the new earth, though I think there will be. That's not really what he's after. God is declaring all food to be clean because the food was symbolic of people. Previously, the Jews were considered to be clean. The Gentiles, like us, were considered to be unclean. But now God says in verse 15, what I've made clean, meaning all people do not call common. What God is saying is that Jews and Gentiles are no longer to be separated. In Christ, both Jews and Gentiles are clean. In Jesus, the two have become one. In Jesus, Gentiles now have a place at God's table. How do we know this? Skip down to verse 28, which was a climactic moment in church history because Peter, a Jew, is invited into Cornelius' house, a Gentile, which was unthinkable at that time culturally and spiritually speaking. This was unheard of. For a Jew to go into a Gentile's house was forbidden by the law. Peter would have immediately become ceremonially unclean, unwelcome in the temple himself. He would have sinned against God. But Peter begins to get it. Jesus is setting him free from the old ways. And he says in verse 28, You yourselves, Gentiles, you know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. In other words, he says, You know I'm breaking the law by walking up in your house. But God has shown me. He means in that vision of all the animals where he said, Eat them. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Therefore, to look down on any ethnicity or skin color simply because of the color of their skin is to fundamentally eradicate the New Testament itself. We cannot say we believe in the Bible if we turn our noses up at other ethnicities. You can't do it. You can't call yourself a Christian. And then skip down to verse 34 and 35 for a further explanation. Peter opened his mouth and he said, Truly, I understand. He's getting it. I didn't understand it 24 hours ago, but now I do. God's shown me something. God's convicted me of something. I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, not just Jewish nations any longer, but every nation, not just America, every country, not just in the English language, all languages, all people, in every nation, anyone who fears God and does what is right is acceptable to God. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, female, male, 
Red, yellow, black, white, all precious in God's sight because God shows no partiality. Anyone can now be acceptable to God. But how? Because whether we're black or white or rich or poor or Asian or Hispanic, we still have this sin problem and God is still holy. That hasn't changed. So how can any sinful people, whatever color we are, get into the presence of God? And Peter anticipates the question, and he gives you the gospel in verse 36. As for the word that God sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. If Jesus Christ is Lord of all, then all are welcome in Christ. And this is why Paul says in that crucial text in Galatians 3, for in Christ Jesus, we are all sons of God. I want to say a word to the women of God here. He says, in Christ, you are all, and he's speaking to a group of men and women. You're all those sons of God. Ladies in Christ, positionally speaking, you are a son of God, meaning you are heirs and you will receive the full inheritance of God. God sees you ladies the same way he would see his oldest son who is not shorted, but who receives the full inheritance of the father. In Christ, then, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's what that means. In the church of Jesus Christ, there is zero zilch room for ethnocentrism. If you don't know what that word means, Google it. And don't be it. In the church of Christ, there's no room for male chauvinism. In the church of Christ, there's no room for socioeconomic elitism. In the church of Christ, there's zero room for racism, not even a hint. Does it matter if granddaddy did it? You can't if you call yourself a Christian. What I want to say is, forget about the cultural pressure. This is not Christians trying to catch up with what's politically correct. I don't care about political correctness. Christians, we don't operate on principles of political correctness. No, we don't show favoritism and partiality and racism, not because it's politically incorrect, but because it's anti-gospel. That's why we don't do it. It's because we're Christians before we're Americans. All people are created in the image of God, and the ground is level at the cross of Christ. We may all come from different sides of the tracks, but we all still come from the same Adam, which means we're all sinners who stand condemned outside of Christ. White people are in just as desperate a need for a Savior as Muslim refugees. There's no superiority we're all desperately, fully, holistically, comprehensively damned apart from Jesus. 
And this is why tying it all together, Paul says in one of the most important texts in all the New Testament, Ephesians 2, he defines the outworkings of the gospel. So to disconnect racism, for example, from the gospel is not biblical. Paul says so. Remember, Ephesians 2.12, that you, this is Gentiles he's speaking to at Ephesus, and every one of us in this room, therefore, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. In other words, God didn't start his plan for the world with white middle-class Americans. We came along thousands of years later. America is not the primary hub for the kingdom of God. God doesn't need America. He'll use us. But what we do in Washington, D.C., one way or the other, won't dictate what God does with his kingdom. We can burn to the ground, but the gospel marches on. So don't put too much hope in whoever gets elected next November. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Church, this is so important as we go into another political season. Ethnic and racial harmony must first and foremost be seen not as a social issue and not a political issue. Racial and social harmony and justice are fundamentally a blood issue. The blood of Jesus, that is. This is why Piper writes, the bloodline of Jesus is deeper than the bloodlines of race. The death and resurrection of the Son of God for sinners is the only sufficient power to bring the bloodlines of race into the single bloodline of the cross. And then Paul says in verse 14, for he himself, that's Jesus, is our peace. That's the same word peace Paul used back in Acts 10, 36. Luke used, I meant who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that God might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." Brothers and sisters in Christ, there's not this race and that race. There's one race, and that's the blood-bought race of Jesus Christ. In Christ, there is not a Jewish church. There is not a Gentile church. There's not a white church. There's not a black church. There's not a Presbyterian church, an Assemblies of God church, and a Baptist church, and a Methodist church. There's one church, and that is the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. That is what the gospel has done. And because we won't figure it out in this lifetime, because of all of our differences, God will get us together under one roof in heaven for all of eternity. Then we'll get it. But in the meantime, we'll divide. In the meantime, we'll poke fun at one another on social media. In the meantime, we'll breathe down our noses on everybody around us that's not like us. And in the meantime, we'll continue to bash the Presbyterians and the Pentecostals 
and the Methodist, and anybody that doesn't got it figured out just like we do. And God have mercy. God have mercy. So, I want to give us five questions for reflection as we wrap up. Uh, Lord's Supper, men and women, if you guys would move to your places. Let's not pass out the elements yet, but let's, let's get prepared. If our music team was to come forward, don't, don't clock out. I got five questions. If you can, I think these are in the bulletin. If not, jot them down. Take a screenshot. And I want you to reflect upon these this afternoon and through the week because I don't have time to get into all of them. Here's the first question. In light of today's teaching, how does this affect the way we interact with other ethnicities? In other words, what does the gospel say about all of the refugees that have moved into Owensboro? What does the gospel say? I I don't care what the government says about it. What does the gospel say about it? Do we view refugees in Owensboro as people made in the image of God that need to know Jesus loves them? Or do we view them as a threat or an annoyance? Second question, how does this teaching affect the way we think about racial prejudice in the church? So, so we would say, I think all of us would say, well, we don't show favoritism based upon skin color. But when was the last time we had a person with a different skin color into our home for a meal? Because very few things say more about us than who we're willing to eat with in our home. You see, we can have a theology that says we don't show partiality, but if we don't live that out, then at best we're hypocritical in our theology. Third question, how does this teaching affect the way we think about classism and social elitism in the church? And you've got to hit this from two angles. Do we look down on the poor and judge them without knowing their story? Do we just assume they're lazy? Do we just assume the homeless person is unwilling to get a job? Maybe there's a reason behind why she can't work. But on the flip side, do we stereotype the wealthy and assume that just because they have money, they're arrogant or haughty? Do we just assume that they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth and they didn't have to work very, very hard against the odds to get where they are? How does this teaching affect the way we think about the value of both men and women in the church? Evangelicals, are we prone at times to silencing the voices and insight of women in the church? Because we think that the only place for women is in the nursery or the kitchen. And as a result, at times, Do our churches end up becoming single-parent churches? With a lot of fathers whose insight we value, but apart from the insight and wisdom of the mothers? And fifth, how does this teaching affect the way we think about those brothers and sisters with whom we have theological differences? Do we look down on other denominations or traditions because we're the ones who really have it right? I fear that there will be a lot of humility dished out to us, myself included, when we get to heaven, when we all realize that we didn't get it all right. Because we can have all the head knowledge in the world. Listen, if we could do our Bible studies 
if we could cross all of our theological T's and dot all of our doctrinal I's, but that same Bible we're studying also says knowledge puffs up with pride. But really matters isn't the head, it's the heart, God says. In a prideful heart that has all the right answers but turns our nose up to those we disagree with, that breaks the heart of God. Brothers and sisters, today's teaching is God shows no partiality, therefore neither should we. So let's bow our heads. I want to ask our uh, ushers to begin to go ahead and and pass out the bread and the cup so you can you can bow your heads but be prepared to res- to hold on to that when you get it but I want us to begin to meditate on what this text has to do with the Lord's Supper it has everything to do with it because the Lord's Supper is a meal with Jesus where Jesus shows no partiality because all sinners whether they're black or white or rich or poor are welcome at Jesus' table if they repent and believe in Jesus Whether the sinner is male or female, whether the sinner has been addicted to drugs, or whether that sinner has just battled self-righteousness their whole life, if we repent and believe in Jesus, there's room for us at this table. Because the whole point of the Lord's Supper is that Jesus has died for sinners. And the bread represents his broken body. The, The cup represents his shed blood. He said, when we take the Lord's Supper, what we're saying is, what can wash away my sins? And it's not my ethnicity. It's not my politics. It's not my doctrinal persuasion. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So this is a meal for sinners, but only for sinners who have repented and entrusted Jesus in walking in obedience to Him. And so if you're not walking and believing in Jesus, this is not a meal for you. But not only that, when we eat the Lord's Supper, it's an end times or eschatological snapshot of the kingdom of God to come where there will be a marriage supper of the Lamb that consists of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this is why at the Lord's Supper, Jesus said in Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this supper is not just about today. It's actually a meal that points us to a greater meal that is still yet to come. With skin colors we've never seen. In languages we've never heard. Which is why the Lord's Supper is actually it fuels us and motivates us for the Great Commission. This is why we do missions because the Lord's Supper says there's still empty seats at the table. More are welcome in. Go invite them in to God's kingdom. So when you receive the elements, just ponder these things. Let's examine ourselves. 